Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast hosted by myself, Sebastian Kaplan, based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA, and as always, joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Seb. Hi, everybody. So, Glenn, before uh, before I introduce our guest today, uh, get us rolling with the social media contact uh, options that people have. Okay, thanks. Us. So Facebook is Talking to Change. Our Twitter handle is at Change Talking. And thank you to Maddie Nicholson at Motivational Mad who responded to a tweet I sent out before we came on air today just asking for questions. So we have a question from Maddie today at Change Talking. And for emails, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. And as always, uh, we welcome any reviews or questions or feedback that people have about past episodes or this episode or even ideas for future episodes. Okay, so we'll get started uh, with an introduction of our guest today. Our guest is David Prescott, who is the Clinical Services Development Director for the Beckett Family of Services. Uh, That's a a group of practices throughout uh, New England. Uh, He also provides consultation to agencies around the world. Mr. Prescott has produced 20 book projects and numerous articles and chapters in the areas of assessing and treating sexual violence and trauma. His latest projects on feedback-informed treatment and forensic report writing and trauma-informed care were published in 2017 to 2019. Mr. Prescott is a current fellow and past president of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, the largest professional organization of its kind in the world. He is also the 2014 recipient of that organization's Distinguished Contribution Award, one of only a handful of recipients. Previously, he received the Bright Lights Award from the National Adolescent Perpetration Network in 2007. He has since become a member of that organization's Board of Elders. Mr. Prescott is a senior associate and certified trainer for the International Center for Clinical Excellence and a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. He's also a consultant, supervisor, and invited trainer for the Romanian Association for Brief Therapies and Strength-Based Solution-Focused Consultancy, and on the Scientific Committee of the Polish Institute for Motivational Interviewing. Mr. Prescott has lectured around the world, including most recently in Australia, Japan, Germany, Iceland, Poland, Romania, Norway, Namibia, Canada, and the UK. He has served on the editorial boards of three scholarly journals, Motivational Interviewing, Training, Research, Implementation, and Practice, the Journal of Sexual Aggression, and Sexual Abuse, a Journal of Research and Treatment. Mr. Prescott is also co-editor of the New England Adolescent Research Institute News, which is read by thousands of professionals each month. A very warm welcome to you, David. Thank you for joining us. All right, thanks. It's great to be here. And we often uh, get started with our guests. Just uh, very interested in hearing your early MI stories. What? How did you find out about MI, and and what were some of those first learning experiences that you had? 
Sure. Well, I guess, uh, you know, I got started in 1984. I, uh, I needed a job reference so that I could get into social work school. And I took a job at this um, drug rehab center in Syracuse, New York. And it was um, it was a uh, frightening experience in, in many ways, using hot seat therapy and sort of pretty much all of the low empathy, um, toxic interventions that uh, many have uh, have heard about and that I guess still persist in uh, in various corners of the world. Um, but it was enough to really make me think about what is social work, um, which has been my area of study. What is social work practice? Uh, where does social control enter into the mix, um, and where are all of the boundaries um, in these uh, in these areas? Then, by the time the 80s and the 90s rolled around, and I was working in residential treatment with adolescents, um, I was increasingly asked to work with these kids who had sexually abused. And there again, it seemed that the common wisdom of the time was that treatment should be harsh and confrontational, um, brusque and, uh, and in your face. And most of the treatment providers that I met at the time um, uh, seemed to, uh, to wear this, uh, these attributes very well. And I think there, there was a whole group of professionals like myself that remained very quiet in these days, wondering, was this really the best way to treat kids? Um, over time, I then got asked to, uh, to go and work in an adult program in the upper Midwest of the, of the United States. I was invited to take this position in large part because of my background with adolescents. And I hope it doesn't come off too disrespectfully if I say, um, once I was done with 18 years of working professionally with adolescents, I, I went to a program where very often the same adults were uh, seemed to be just as impulsive uh, and sometimes as irritable as the ones that I'd left behind. And it it took, um, or at least as the kids that I'd left behind. Now, I mean this with all due respect, but it was the way things seemed to be. Somewhere around uh, in all of this, just at the same time as um, the second edition of the Motivational Interviewing uh, book by Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick came out, um, I saw a keynote address given, and it referred to it. And the, the presenter, a, a wonderful man named David Burton, since retired, said, um, I really urge you, go out and read the new motivational interviewing book and go out and read a couple of other books as well. So I did. And I bought the videos done by Bill and Steve in 1997, I think it was. And I, I still remember the moment when asked, how did this all get started? They said, well, we learned it from our clients. And I thought, hey, everything I know, I learned from my clients as well. I'm, I'm starting to like this. And it was only then that I realized how difficult many of these most basic skills are to put into practice. I think, as I've heard uh, Bill say, when people get introduced to, to motivational interviewing, it's as though they already knew it in their hearts. And that the real, the real trick to all of this is how do we put it into our practice on a day-to-day -day basis? So it was a natural fit, and it seemed uh, that it relieved me of the duties of having to write down everything that I'd learned from working, working with some pretty difficult clients because these guys had already done it. Uh, from there, uh, it was uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump. In, in my case, there's a wonderful guy in San Francisco named Steve Bergsmith, to whom I am eternally uh, grateful, who I went, attended a training with. Um, he then coached me and uh, listened to recordings of my sessions and gave me feedback. 
Um, and then I brought him out to do training for our staff in, uh, in Wisconsin. So it's sort of maybe a little, a little bit longer of a story, but I guess the points that I want to highlight are we really did this. In the U.S. in the 1970s into the 1980s and the 1990s, treatment could be a really, really harsh place for clients to be. And at first, I thought I was working with these vulnerable kids only to find a group of adults that were just as vulnerable. You know, even after 30 or so years of experience of doing the work, I did a couple of studies on adults who had sexually abused and found um, that they were endorsing rates of adverse childhood experiences that were difficult to imagine even after decades of practice. This is why we do science. We're, we're always astonished by the, the results. But our clients endorsed very high levels of emotional abuse, adult males, adult females who had sexually abused. And it was only then, just in the past few years, that I developed a deeper, deeper, I mean, I had already known this through clinical experience, but to actually do the statistical work, finding out how much the old ways of doing treatment were replicating the very environments that these people had grown up in. That's just not right. So a long answer to an easy question, but the, the further I've gone with MI, the more important I realize that it is. Hmm. So hashtag tough love with kids doesn't seem to have worked that well. Uh, it was done with the best intentions, but after 18 years of experience, when you went to work with the adults, if it had been working, you would have, ex you would have expected to see the adults present in a different way. That wasn't the case. When you were introduced to Motivation Interview, and it sounds like that the challenge for us, or challenge for you, was the unlearning of the ineffective approaches to get back to what was already in you. And then, Absolutely. right. And then the, so the, 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 the technical side of Motivation Interview and the, the opening strategies, the opening equations, affirmations, reflections, summaries were the presentation of the music that was in you, and that took time and practice. But also quite scarily for me, and I imagine for a lot of people listening, it's recognizing that one of the things you've identified is, is that in our efforts to be helpful to these young people, potentially we are perpetrating the harm that was visited upon them that brought them to our attention in the first place. It's almost like we are creating a parallel experience that, uh, and, and, and I wonder, can you tease that out a bit further? What, knowing that, what that has taught you that has helped you to do it differently so that your clients of today are getting a different experience and one, I imagine, you hope to be more of a healing experience? You know, the first place I go as I'm listening to this question is remembering a quote from Monty Roberts, the, the horse whisperer, um, in a, a three-minute video that's circulated amongst some MI trainers. Um, he says, nobody has the right to say you must or I'll hurt you. And unfortunately, um, from the old days of spare the rod and spoil the child to our flirtation with boot camps, um, primarily in the American West, a lot of harm has been done in the name of doing good. You know, the old pathway to hell and good intentions and, and these kinds of things. The way that I've tried to explain it at a more practical level is, by the time kids or, frankly, anybody ends up in our treatment programs, the whole rest of the world has told them they need to knock it off. The whole rest of the world has told them their behaviors are unacceptable, and it, and it didn't work. 
And so by the time you come to our programs, it's it's time for something new. And I, I'm very blessed to have worked with a woman in Vermont. I'm, I'll even name her. Her name is Lee Gallagher. She's one of my favorite people. And she might not even remember saying this, but at one point she said, you know, we need to raise our kids in a way that they can someday raise kids of their own. And so in working with abuse all too often, it seemed uh, the common wisdom at the time was um, these people abuse um, out of a need for power and control. Uh, and yet the whole rest of their existences went missing. I, that that statement, as far as I can see, is not entirely inaccurate. It's just that there's a lot more to the the puzzle, as well as the fact that everybody I've ever known wanted some degree of power and control in their life. The, the things are very tricky. We're dealing with complex human beings, and it took them a while to end up with these kinds of behaviors. It's going to take a while to unpack and undo them as well. So yes, and that even goes for me, um, Glenn, as you uh, rightly observed, many of us really do have to unlearn a lot of skills in order to really practice MI. Right. We see this in so many fields. The If telling people to change or how to change worked, then we wouldn't have clinics that are filled with people that are needing help with change. And, and I suppose in your field, it's no different. Maybe you could talk a bit about like what it's like for a clinician in your world who is faced with uh, a group of people or a person or, or, or behaviors that they're trying to change that uh, might pull for a writing. And maybe this speaks directly to Maddie's question, Glenn, um, who, who was very curious, was just curious about a couple of things. But one of the things in particular was, was about your own writing reflex or the reflex of practitioners in your clinical work. How do you, they talk a little bit about the experience of a clinician in, in that way and, and how do you uh, adjust it so that you can be more helpful to somebody? Sure. Um, the the answer is complicated. And by the way, thank you, Maddie, for the, uh, for the excellent question. I, I, let me take a step back and say, obviously, I believe any amount of abuse is unacceptable. And uh, I'll just say at a personal level, um, I'm a husband. I've just, uh, in fact, celebrated 25 years of, of marriage. Um, we've raised two kids. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, we've raised two kids of our own. Um, I am no stranger uh, to the thought process that many of us have gone through. Uh, some, it goes something along the lines of, please, God, don't let my kids abuse. And both of my kids are, are boys. So I'm also no stranger to the idea of, please, God, don't let my kids grow up to abuse. Uh, there's so many different ways the world can um, be a cruel place for uh, for our children. So I, all of this a long-winded way of saying, I get it. Um, and, and, I've, and I've lived it. So please just understand that as a background to everything that follows. From there, then, there's this problem that human beings get, and uh, or a challenge, I guess I should say, that, that we all get. And I've heard it sometimes called the flashbulb moment of when we realize that somebody that we might have respected abused somebody else. Um, here in the United States, we had the famous uh, coach, uh, Larry Nasser, or we had the comedian that I grew up with named Bill Cosby, or um, in the UK, it was uh, Jimmy Savile and, uh, and others. 
where all of a sudden we say, oh, my gosh, he did what? Or uh, President Bill Clinton or um, to be on the other side of the political aisle, Donald Trump with the Access Hollywood tape, where all of a sudden somebody that we admire and respect, uh, we get clear and convincing evidence that they have caused some kind of harm to others. It can it suddenly we have this flashbulb moment of one image of the abuse or one facet of the abuse. And on behalf of all of the people that we read about, the beautiful young woman on the college campus, um, in that moment, we want to obliterate the abuse. And I think that that's a natural response that we get, or that we even want to obliterate the person who did the abuse. This, I think, I'm trying to capture the experience for most people. The simple fact is that it is a practice skill that um, once we we get to know the person who's abused, very often we get a uh, we develop a different kind of an outlook. People who defended um, the the folks that I've just named have said, "But you don't understand. He's a really good guy." Or even worse, in treatment. You don't understand. My dad's a really good guy. And in the past, we might say, well, you know, I'm, un unfortunately, I'm going to have to disabuse you of that notion or or yes, but he hurt you or, or whatever else. Our writing reflex comes in because of this flashbulb moment. How how do you move on from abuse? How do you let this go, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess, you know, to go the, the very simple answer is over time, as you get to know the people that have perpetrated abuse, that have caused harm to others, um, as well as those that have been harmed, um, inevitably you start to see them as human beings. And then this leads to a variety of challenges. How do we hold on to the complexity of another human being all at once to say, yes, this is a person who's caused immeasurable harm? Or sometimes in my in my practice, this is a person who can probably never be entirely free in the community without being at significant risk. This poor, unfortunate human being is never going to get to know life in the way that, um, that many of us have been blessed to know it. Um, this, this poor human being, this poor soul uh, may very well have to be very carefully supervised. Um, at some time, he has really, it's mostly he, but certainly women who abuse her um, are out there as well. Um, this is a person who's caused very significant harm, um, and I would like to be able to help him, and he may never be able to be free in the community, this poor human soul. Or this is a person with a genuine dyed-in-the-wool, as we say, um, sexual attraction to children, on one hand, and on the other hand, they're much more than the sum of their sexual arousal patterns. So um, I, I've come to look at these kinds of things as practice skills, and very often, frankly, um, sort of anticipating additional questions, a lot of the skills that we have to develop ha happen outside, outside uh, excuse me, outside the therapeutic hour that we might spend with these individuals. And this, for me, is where MI has come in. How can I become a more compassionate human being? How do I actually develop and demonstrate compassion in the moment that I'm looking at somebody um, who looks as though they genuinely don't care about the number of people that they've hurt? How do I, how do I uh, get better at uh, steeling myself against the amount of harm uh, that this person has done and its inevitable effect on me? Because research does, in fact, show 
that working with people um, who've abused can be a perilous uh, process in terms of secondary victimization or vicarious traumatization, secondary traumatization. And of course, it's not just people in my field, it's people in lots of fields, although it seems to be folks who work with those convicted of sex crimes and police officers who seem to end up being studied the most. Mm. Uh, wow. uh, am I answering your question up to this point? Well, you're, you're, you certainly are, and, and in many ways, you are inviting us to look at the, the purest presentation of what I think uh, Rogers is talking about, that person-centered approach, which is the acceptance of an individual uh, we had a we had Stan Stendhal from Australia talking to us about compassion, and it sounds like this is the extremities of the capacity of my ability to be compassionate towards someone. Um, that this is someone who has done grave harm to another individual or individuals, and more significantly, I, and I imagine more challenging, challengingly for a lot of us is that some of the individuals you're talking about have done great harm to children. And it will trigger something within us. And it sounds like the journey that you have been on has been about how to I how can I first of all contain the reality that this part of this individual is real, but it's not all of who they are. And your ability to, to see that part of them, that really dangerous predator in the context of other aspects of their life, and to see them in a bigger picture and try and meet them in that place. And I suppose one of the questions that, that I guess a lot of people are asking is, how did you do that, David? Do you know, what, what, were the, what are some of the practical steps? If there are people out there who really want to work on stretching their compassion muscle or really building on their person-centered understanding in practice, what are some of the things that you, you did or that you could encourage other people to think about doing to help them to be able to hold both the darkness and the light of an individual at the same sure. time. Well, thanks. That was a very kind way that you just asked the question. And it um, actually makes me um, uh, really and truly feel humble because I don't think I'm necessarily a, a world leader <laughs> in this in this regard. I'm not sure I'm the best example. Um, but I will say that what has worked for me more than anything, obviously, has been cultivating my relationships with other people. If I had one motto, it would be what Ringo Starr sang back in 1967 when he sang the song, I Get By With a Little Help From My Friends. And, and frankly, to be perfectly open and honest, I spend a lot of time um, doing meditation. I uh, used to be uh, more on the mat yoga person, and I uh, try to uh, walk or jog or run or hike uh, as much as I can. Um, in the old days, we called it getting outside. I heard somebody joke the other day, we used to call it getting outside. Now we call it mindfulness um, <laughs> or uh, forest bathing or what have you. Um, but I've increasingly, <laughs> increasingly thought that self-care is as important as it gets. And, and I say this uh, not out of any sort of I've transcended all forms of aggressive thinking perspective, but but rather I've watched a lot of professionals make some egregious mistakes. And so I have come to believe it's our obligation to take really, really good care of ourselves. So my thinking is um, spend as much time meditating as you can. Use red lights and uh, crosswalks 
um, when you're waiting to cross the street. These are times you can meditate. It doesn't have to be a 10-day retreat and all of that sort of thing. But it, in order to practice MI effectively, I really do see a lot of benefit in contemplative practices. So I hope that this answer is neither uh, boring <laughs> nor that new. Well, it, no, it's sounds really critical for you and, and I assume for many other people as well, the importance of self-care as a way, not just to care for yourself, but also as a way to maintain a high level of clinical skill. These aren't two separate parts of you. I mean, you know, so the self-care contributes to you um, being as effective a clinician as you can be. It's interesting you brought up meditation because when you were talking about you kept saying the phrase, the poor souls, uh, yes. even even when talking about someone who's committed acts so egregious and a pattern of uh, egregious behavior that they would likely never be fully free. And you kept coming back to that term, poor soul. It, it almost sounded as if it was a meditation that you mm. perhaps use or, or kind of draw upon. I, I, it made me wonder that, but now I... I the need to ask it since you brought up meditation. Sure, it's a it's a great question. I hadn't even considered that, um, but rather thought to myself, um, it goes back all to working with kids. We're working with tiny little souls, um, and that all human beings, and uh, it, it, in my way of thinking, sort of all beings, uh, to some degree, are our souls, and we should always uh, remember that. I grew up in the era of the Vietnam War, and like many of my age, remember seeing the body counts in the nightly news. It used to say, this is how many died in Vietnam, this is how many or Vietnamese died, this is how many uh, American soldiers died, uh, and stuff like this. And and I would contrast that to when we, re when we used to read about shipwrecks, the saying was the ship went down with, you know, the Titanic went down with uh, 1,400 souls uh, or, or whatnot. So there's, there's many places where we use language to minimize um, harm. My clients very often um, have minimized the harm that they've done through their words by, uh, by saying, I, uh, you know, was just monkeying around with those kids, for example. And there's times I simply want to tell the truth with language. And for me, this is one way that I do it, which is at the end of the day, these are human beings. If you were hurt by one of my clients, I'm so sorry. And uh, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I don't expect you to ever feel particularly compassionately about this person. That's where I come in. This is my job. And, you know, when I read about politicians um, causing harm to one another, um, I'm as angry as the next person and possibly angrier. However, when I'm doing my work and engaging in this practice, um, I've sometimes referred to it as my psychological white lab coat. Doctors put on lab coats so that uh, they remember what their role is. They're a doctor. Um, and certainly I don't want a doctor who's empathic with the sense that, oh, my gosh, my poor patient is bleeding. I'm, I feel uh, absolutely sick with disgust and compassion for this poor man. It's not the right demonstration of empathy. I want the, the physician to, you know, the, the surgeon to go in and, and do his job. Um, on the other hand, he wears a white lab coat to remind him what his role is. And I kind of do the same thing. Um, I go in dressed professionally and say, these are clients in my care. And I'm concerned to, about the community. 
I'm concerned about their safety. I'm concerned about my contractual obligations to the criminal justice system. I'm, I'm concerned about my ethical considerations with my clients. I'm concerned about my contractual obligations to the various stakeholders with whom I work. I'm concerned about my, um, I don't really like the word moral because I don't always know what it actually means, but my sort of moral or ethical obligations to the community around me. And so I'm going to operate within the sort of parameters that I experience as a uh, um, as a professional. I, I hope this is um, uh, making things a little clearer, making sense or answering the question. So your desire to be helpful is across a m- multiple layered dynamic where there's perpetrators, there's victims, the community, there's people, there's souls, uh, and you're endeavoring to connect with each at whatever level they're at. So with a, a victim, you're you're acknowledging the pain that the individual going to be working with has caused them, but that doesn't help. That then doesn't mean you deviate from your attempts to be helpful to the perpetrator himself. And it made me think of something that uh, somebody said to me, I found very profound, which was, why do we interrupt a bully being a bully? And it was that it wasn't just to protect the victim because being a bully isn't good for you. And that's why I want to stop it. And it's yes. a, it was a lovely reframe. In fact, I think it was Dee Dee Stout in, in, in the podcast we did with her. A lovely reframe and just about helping me to... The reason why I want to interrupt your sexual behavior and attraction to children is because it's not good for you either. Exactly. Right, right. Yes. Mm. If I could go backwards uh, just a step, Glenn, um, you made such an important point. Yes, when I'm when I'm just about anywhere, uh, I'm always aware that we are never more than a stone's throw away from a survivor of sexual abuse. So there's a lot of it out there in the community, and um, the world is not divided into perpetrators and victims. Those that have been victimized sometimes have also caused harm to others. And likewise, those that have caused harm to others very often have a background of victimization. And there's, it's not just an intellectual or um, academic question of, so where do we draw the line? It, you know, this, this is the world that we have. And, and it's even worse than this, too. There's a marvelous TED Talk. I, I believe it's called um, We're All Criminals or something to this effect. But it, it gets to the point that um, if we go and back and remember what we did as teenagers, we uh, we find that, that we too broke the law and most of us um, grew out of it. Um, how many of us went to university and drank way too much um, on uh, perhaps more than one occasion? At the end of the day, I think one of the great realizations and sort of tragedies of uh, of the world is, or maybe it's a benefit, I'm not sure, but I just know it exists, which is that the difference between people who cause harm and people who don't um, is sometimes uh, the, the only difference is a six pack of beer and a really bad decision. Now, I'm not talking about the people that are bound and determined to do it again. I'm not talking about people who have a very strong uh, element of uh, of risk um, operating in their lives. Uh, the simple fact is that the majority of people who are known to sexually abuse others are not known to go on to do it again. This is sort of something that um, many people aren't aware of. And in fact, the most recent studies of adolescents who sexually abuse have found a known reoffense rate um, that's under 5%. 
uh, something that's gotten a lot of us to start to wonder about the nature of science as well as the nature of uh, adolescence and growing up and, and so on. So the good news is people change. People change dramatically. Uh, the bad news is that, uh, as the saying goes, we're all capable of causing harm. So I'm sorry, I just had to uh, to to work all of these things in. But yes, it's a, it's a complicated community out there. Yeah, it, one of the things that really comes through in hearing you today and, and having heard you speak in the past at some of the MI conferences that we've all attended is a real effort to establish, I, I guess you could say, uh, a common ground or a level playing field for which you view the people that you work with and the people that you try to help. And again, that, that might be something that's just really difficult for people to imagine if they're working with someone who has caused harm to other people and in, in, in the way that your clients have. It just seems like there's this real concerted effort that you that you take on to really not necessarily normalize their behavior, but at some level normalize part of what they're after, right? Some basic needs that they're trying to meet. Sure. Um, this uh, this sort of ties into other work that I've done with something called the Good Lives Model that got its start in the late 1990s, early 2000s, in, first in New Zealand, and has kind of spread rapidly, frankly, around the world. And the Good Lives Model that uh, my colleague and friend Tony Ward, being one of the uh, um, really the primary originator, one of the things that has occurred to us and makes a great deal of sense sort of intuitively is that people abuse others out of a variety of motivations and in a variety of contexts and circumstances. And what I mean is very often if you can move upstream from the momentary behavior, that means that we need to move upstream from that flashbulb moment that I talked about as we understand the exact processes that led somebody to cause harm, which are best, I think, uncovered using motivational interviewing, very often we find that these individuals have underlying goals that are the same as anybody else in the world. If you move upstream from, uh, for example, um, molesting children, to use the most graphic and emotionally provocative example out there, if you move upstream very often, you find somebody who in that moment was seeking out some degree of emotional connection as well as uh, some degree of autonomous decision-making saying for once in my life, I want to call the shots or do something that I want. You find the same need for happiness and pleasure that the rest of us have. We just uh, seek it out in different ways. Maybe even the same uh, need for some measure of inner peace. I might be being a little bit unfair because he was not found guilty, but Michael Jackson might provide something of an example. So I'm going to use him rhetorically or maybe uh, ask people to suspend judgment about Michael Jackson. But this legendary pop singer who um, I have to confess, I like I like his music now more than I did in the 1980s. And he was an immensely talented person, whether or not you were a fan of his music. And here was a person who actually said that he preferred the company of children to the company of adults. 
Okay. So what is up with all of that? Most of us only saw the odd and eccentric behavior. He he dangled his own child off the balcony of a hotel in Berlin. Um, and most of us have that as kind of a flashbulb uh, mem- memory or the the uh, the fact that he was arrested or had a Ferris wheel in his Neverland ranch, all of these kinds of things. But if you listen to what he actually had to say, he would say, yeah, I trusted I trust children more than adults. He could felt that he could be open and, dare I say, intimate with children in a way that he couldn't from adults. His life experiences led him not to be able to trust adults. Anybody that's ever even flirted with being a professional musician knows it's it's difficult to trust other people in the music business, et cetera, et cetera. So he he told us himself in his interviews that he wanted um, some degree of inner peace and almost a sense of sanctuary from the dangers and exploitation of the real world. So in the moment, as we consider what he, I believe, very likely did to kids, we, uh, we see that he was after some of the same goals as the rest of us. I use meditation to find a sense of inner peace. Unfortunately, he did not. I uh, I can have, uh, well, I guess my ideas of happiness and pleasure are, um, are pretty straightforward. I like, uh, I used to enjoy going to see college hockey games for reasons that are, I suppose, strictly MI non-adherent. Um, that's a little joke there. Um, but, you know, I have, uh, I enjoy listening to music. Unfortunately, Michael Jackson turned to medications, propofol and, and things like that, that ended up being his downfall. So all human beings seem to be motivated by the same underlying goals, but we all seem to seek them out in dramatically different ways. So having then suspended judgment, which I think is one of the most important MI skills that there is, suspending judgment, then trying to understand what were all the goals that are upstream uh, from all of these others. I uh, can't remember her name, but at an MI uh, conference, there was a woman that spoke to uh, to this brilliantly by saying, what is that still small voice within that is uh, sort of underlying all of the other elements that happen in somebody's life? And she runs an exercise that goes something like, think of anything that you want right now. Anything from um, coffee with some uh, whiskey mixed into it to uh, to world peace. And then ask yourself, if you did have that right now, then what else in your life would you have? And if you had that in your life, then what else would you have? It's a brilliant, brilliant exercise. And I'm, I apologize to her for blanking on her name, uh, but she's from the uh, Southeastern United States. And so the Good Lives Model, I think, taps into this. What are the goals that are upstream? Because once we know what these goals are and how, how they've operated in this person's life, then we're better suited to find the humanity. Then we can enter into partnership and acceptance and compassion. And once we have an idea of what these goals even are in this person's life, we can then go about the business of being evocative and to really be listening to the, for the difference of where they are and where they want to be um, in ways big and small that we might be able to evoke and develop skills around. This is why I love the Good Lives model, because it gives us a kind of repertoire of what are these goals. Now, originally, we we tended to think about this in self-determination theory. With Ryan and DC, they talked about competence and connection and autonomy, um, which is interesting because 
um, so often autonomy and connection seem to almost be at odds with one another. Um, if you're autonomous, you might not be entirely connected. This this means sometimes our goals are in conflict with one another. But here we had self-determination theory. Sometimes people come to us with extrinsic motivations of criminal justice, but our job is then to link into the in, intrinsic uh, motivation that they might have with these three goals. And then a fellow named Robert Emmons came along with a book, um, one of my all-time favorite titles, um, which was The Psychology of Ultimate Concerns. And although it's not a good paraphrase, he basically said, what's the matter with us that we talk about competence and connection on autonomy, but we haven't talked about meaning and purpose and spirituality. All human beings want to know where they fit into the planet. All human beings have some kind of sense of identity or you know, mission purpose vision that they, uh, that they have. Why aren't we also tapping into that as an intrinsic motivator? And for some of our clients, uh, as some of my clients anyway, I've found that very often they've come to define themselves as sexually attracted to children, sometimes viewing themselves in shame and self-hatred, believing that they're nothing more than that. How do we reawaken that drive towards a deeper sense of meaning and purpose? Carl Jung, if I'm remembering correctly, once said, before somebody turns 50, their problems are with sex. And after they turn 50, their problems are with God. Now, that is very reductionistic at best. But you have to admit, he did have something of a point. How do we tap into that yearning? Or what Bill Miller once uh, described, I believe it was uh, at a conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a few years back, where he said, sometimes our goals are like a distant shore that we try to sail towards, never entirely arriving at. Can we reframe some of these issues in the lives of a person who's abused in that way? So for me, the um, motivational, uh, uh, the good lives model and motivational interviewing have significant overlap. And by the way, it's as simple for me as asking this basic scaling questions on a scale of zero to 10. How important is it to you to be independent? to have a real measure of autonomy. And on the other hand, under your current circumstances, how confident are you that you can be independent? And I understand three is not a very high number, but it just amazes me with everything else that you've got going on, given that you're here with the probation officer that wants to eat your lunch. <laughs> and um, How come you didn't score yourself as a 0 0.5 or a 1? Etc. To, to elicit this kind of change talk or meaning and purpose in life and, and so on and so forth. So then this leads to the inevitable question. I realize I'm not giving you a chance to talk much, but it, but it does lead to the inevitable question of, so where do you balance serving the various masters of client autonomy? and the criminal justice system. And I, I have to say, in real practice, not all of my clients are um, justice involved at this point, but they are all involved with systems that are beyond all of our control. And in this moment, I'm trying to be as unattached to the criminal justice system as I can be, but I also have to be honest. Let me just say from the outset, you know, I do work at the intersection of the sort of mental health, if you will, uh, and the criminal justice system. I do. And um, you should also know that I, I, I do stand by the values of I, I don't want to see anybody harmed again um, in the future. 
So I do have a, a value in this regard, but just as importantly, I'm here to explore where autonomy fits into your future. So for, for me, this criticism of MI and criminal justice that I've sometimes heard about is, I think, something that we should think about every single day that we do the work, but really isn't that much of a barrier for me. Anyway, long answer to a short question. What stands out for me is the, the, the idea of suspending our judgment and while having an implicit desire to be helpful to someone else, it almost speaks directly to the spirit of motivational interviewing. That, mm. that that everything that you've talked about arises from that place and the upstream understanding of the individual's needs, uh, I think, presents a, a, a real opportunity for us, whether it is at the extreme level where we're working with a perpetrator of childhood sexual abuse or working with someone who maybe drinks too much or maybe somebody who eats too much or somebody who stays out late or somebody who doesn't make their bed. That if we don't, if we go beyond the presentation of the behavior and begin to try and understand what does doing this give them that they're looking for. And by trying to understand that, then we can begin to be curious. So in what other ways could you have those needs met without doing it that way? Exactly. And, and how do you get these? Number one, how can we help other people get these needs if it's the result of they have never been able to develop the skills to get them. How do we help them develop their internal capacity to accomplish these goals? How do we manage help them to manage the external uh, restrictions on achieving these goals? And also, I think just as importantly, is when their goals come into conflict, um, that sometimes the drive to independence and the drive to connection might uh, come into conflict, or it's as simple with um, uh, substance use disorders that it might be that the drive towards inner peace and happiness and pleasure come directly into conflict <laughs> um, with living and surviving, <laughs> mm. or any other goals that people that people have. Mm. And another very important point was that you you seem to be describing that no matter what is going on for this individual, it's about recognizing they haven't given up and that it's meeting them yes. in that place. You know, why has, yes. why, if, why, if this person's life is so bloody dreadful or the, how dreadful it is for us to look into it and describe it as dreadful, why haven't they given up? Why are they still here? And that opens up a, a real curiosity is what's going on in this person's life that makes them want to still be here, even under these circumstances. And it sounds like that brings us over to a strength-based perspective. That brings us over, that can shine a light on how, on what we can be compassionate with, and what it is we try to understand from a needs perspective for this individual. And then how how can I help them find that for themselves without necessarily putting themselves or other people in harm's way? Yeah, exactly. It, it always amazes me. I'm, I'm just saying this as a human being, not an MI practitioner. Our clients, no matter what our backgrounds, always seem to have survived the most amazing ordeals. Mm. It never ceases to amaze me. I keep thinking I, I would have just waited for the earth to swallow me up, but not my clients. So yes, the, uh, the amount of strengths that many of our clients present with are amazing. Before we uh, keep going, Glenn, I just want to make sure we've, I think we've addressed Maddie's questions, but not explicitly mm. with yeah. Here are Maddie's questions. Okay, so um, that, that. That, yeah, good points. And I think you're right. We might have touched on them, but just to be specific or explicit, 
Uh, again, from Molly Nicholson, whose uh, Twitter handle is Motivational Mad, which I think is fantastic. The tweet was, I'm sure you've already got one along these lines, but perhaps something about how David helps balance the needs of the client and the needs of the justice system. And I am interested on his thoughts on how he keeps his writing reflex in check. Looking forward to listening. Smiley face. Thanks, <laughs> Great. Actually, um, maybe if I can offer a, a brief kind of case example. I, obviously, I sanitize um, everything that I do um, when discussing a case. But I keep coming back to the role of community in in doing this kind of um, in doing this kind of work. So we have a uh, contractual obligation to the people that send us their clients, and I always have to remember what is in that person's um, contract or treatment plan, or uh, sometimes. Um, we have something called a behavior development plan, which is developed by a board certified behavior analyst. We work, my agencies right now work with a lot of complex systems. And so it sort of points to a certain irony that all too often we talk about strengths-based interventions and motivational interviewing and in, internal motivation to change and all of these kinds of things. But many of us in real life have to work with treatment plans that our clients had absolutely no voice in developing whatsoever. So as much as we might try to uh, cultivate partnership, acceptance, and compassion and evocation and the, you know, everything that makes the spirit of MI what it is, um, we then have our contractual obligations. So what to do, uh, what to do. So then along comes a client. Now, get ready. Here it comes. And he says to his clinician, who I supervise, I'm telling you, this three-year-old wanted it. This three-year-old asked for it. And she didn't even give me any choice. That's why I did it. And the clinician in that moment, having been amply trained in motivational interviewing by years truly, and being, I think, a, a very brilliant person, absolutely lost his capacity to speak. The, the writing reflex is as close to all of us as our jugular veins. And so I forget exactly how he managed the situation but he said, could we, something that translated as, could we table this discussion uh, for now and come back to it? But I promise I, uh, I won't forget. And then he immediately called me afterwards and said words I will never forget because he's, he's pretty difficult to upset. He, but he said in his own way, David, my client put me in a hole. <laughs> he, uh, he really gave me the blues. It was a difficult conversation to have. And so what I ended up doing was going and interviewing this person and realized that he was telling the truth in the only way that he could, that he did not have the skills to say what had actually happened. So in the old days of working, we might have said he was externalizing blame. Um, in even older times, it might have been he was using projection as a defense mechanism. What I was aware of was profound ambivalence that had remained untapped. On one hand, this is the story that I've been telling. And on the other hand, I know there's another story and I can't put words to it. On one hand, I really want to tell you. And on the other hand, I don't know how. 
And on one hand, I want to be honest. And on the other hand, I'm deadly afraid of how I'm going to experience myself if I do. And so what we came to, to realize was in the moment, he perceived himself as unable to manage the urges that happened as a three-year-old quite legitimately came over and started playing with him. He was couch surfing. Um, her he was staying with her parents um, while he was watching TV and they were in another room. She came and jumped on him. And that was more than he could manage um, at that time. So we need to slow ourselves down and then listen for the narrative that's there if we're willing to, to talk with him about it. So at this point, the way that I'm viewing this was I was the person that came in willing to do motivational interviewing, but having read all of the research that I could possibly stand on people who've abused and the processes of abuse. So I was coming in with all of this macro knowledge about abuse and then trying to understand it at the micro level with this client. Using MI, the only thing I could do was listen, listen, listen for any window into the ambivalence that this person had, and then be able to use my macro knowledge to influence this micro client and um, hopefully use the information that I learned from this particular client to inform the macro knowledge um, about people who abuse. I, I hope I'm still speaking English uh, <laughs> uh, with all of this. The ambivalence is there for the understanding. Um, and I really understood my supervisee feeling overwhelmed in the moment. He, he interviewed or a respectful stop. And I think, you know, in the, at the end of the day, um, he did exactly the right thing. We can always reopen this topic. And frankly, one of the practice skills that I um, learned the hard way over, over time is sometimes when working with people who've seriously caused harm to others, we need to take these conversations slowly, um, lest we open up uh, a great deal of self-hatred and shame um, and, frankly, self-loathing. If we act as though we have all day, the conversations will only take a few minutes. This is another Monty Roberts uh, quote. And if we act as though we have only a few minutes, it might take all day. Just some, some thoughts further on unpacking a right. little bit of MI with a difficult case. And I'm just curious about the, the practicalities of that, I guess. But it sounds like one of the things that you're actively doing at the start and throughout these conversations is, uh, is searching for ambivalence where it may not be readily apparent. And, and so, that, so there's a, a sense inside you that, that that's there, that this is a person who is making these statements that seem very clear cut and you know factual, I guess, from their point of view. But maybe there's an assumption on your part that there is a a lack of uh, vocabulary or skill to be able to discuss the the other side of the of the coin. And and so how what do you actually do, or what are some of the questions that you might ask this person to unpack that or to explore the other side of the ambivalence? Sure. Well, I might just start with some reflections now. In this person's case, it was pretty obvious that he lacked some verbal skills. Um, sometimes this kind of presentation is, is relatively straightforward, um, but it might just simply look like um, some kind of reflective listening. 
Oh, okay. So you have for a long time viewed yourself as uh, kind of a victim in this process. The, uh, the system has kind of rolled over you. It's searched to punish you. Okay. And at the same time, I'm, I'm seeing, if I'm understanding the look on your face correctly, um, I'm seeing some real anguish, like maybe there's a little bit more to this. If I'm not mistaken, I'm seeing some pain. Okay, a quick pause in this to say, you heard me use stems uh, as I'm reflecting this. And this is because I did not know what I was doing in that moment with this client. Under other circumstances, I might be a little bit more bold and, and lose the stems and say, I'm seeing a lot of anguish. Like there's more to this story. I'm hearing a lot of pain underlying this. On, And then I might be able to move into, on, on one hand, this behavior existed and you're not denying it. And on the other hand, there's a deeper story than most people have been willing to listen to. And on one hand, you feel bad about what you did. And on the other hand, you don't feel understood. Uh, personally, in my way of doing MI, I use a lot of double-sided reflections. Um, and I even tend to think in terms of double-sided reflections, even though I'm, uh, you know, in the camp that says there's more than just ambivalence, you know, feeling two ways. It's, uh, my clients are omnivalent, as uh, Mary Pfeiffer, the author, once said she could feel ambivalent about a paperclip. So, uh, uh, but I tend to frame it in a double-sided reflection. So there's this greater story. And... Again, just tell me if I'm wrong, because I most certainly could be. There's a whole story about who you were in all of this and the skill, the skills that you did or didn't use um, within all of this. Again, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a whole person underneath this that in that moment was trying to be a decent person and ended up doing some things that would haunt you for the rest of your life. And for all we know, also, that uh, that three-year-old, there's a lot of these pieces you're still tossing around and might not fully understand yet. I, I guess a, a, I, it's important to highlight here, and maybe this has something to do with Maddie's question or, or with the concerns that other people might have, is, which is there is this question of, you know, at what point does collusion begin to occur or not occur? And I've seen some people try to address this with singular reflections. And my way of addressing the collusion is to kind of dance with it a little bit, but always bring it back to these ultimately were behaviors that caused harm to, to somebody else. I'm not going to let that go, but I am going to try to reflect back their own, I was trying to be innocent at the time, thought. So... This is where I, I think motivational interviewing is a skill that really does take or set a skill set that takes a very long time to to master. So I, I guess I just want to honor that as as I use a, a case example, because we should always be thinking in terms of we're not going to collude with the abuse process, even as we try to understand that. And to an outsider, it might seem as a, wait a minute, in that one reflective statement, weren't you, 
weren't you flirting with uh, collusion? Well, maybe, maybe not, but I'm also going to steer the conversation back into a new direction. I, I, I hope that this makes sense, or at least that it's being understood in the spirit in which um, it's in, intended. And so it, this also sort of winds up with, so what do you do if you're a probation officer as opposed to a, a clinician or what have you? These things are complicated. So in some ways that my willingness to acknowledge what you were thinking or what you were driving towards or what, what your needs were in, them, in itself is not an endorsement on my part. It's an acknowledgement exactly. of what it was for you and and that the avoidance of the endorsement is where I I, I I keep away from the collusive potential of this relationship. So that it's, again, that dance that you describe of being willing to look at how can you become the person that you would like to be while acknowledging how you've been and the harm that that has caused for other people and potentially for yourself as well. And what do you want to do with that experience in a way that can, that I can be of support to you so that you're less likely to do that to yourself and other people in the future while you strive to become this who you could be. Um, and I imagine for a lot of people that our conversation today has really stretched their, their capacity to contain the potential of being helpful. And it's, so it sounds like in many ways it's recognizing that the nature of the people you're working with are living and experiencing life on the edge of our society. So it takes a very particular type of practitioner who can go out and meet the individuals at the edge of society and support them out there. And it sounds like that for me to grow as a practitioner, potentially that's where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grow to the place where I can be as help, helpful to someone out there because it just widens the spectrum of individuals who I can come into contact with and treat them with value and respect and compassion. I imagine that's mirrored in your own experience of your relationship with yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, there's the question about how does MI affect people that I've found over time, I've become uh, far more uh, understanding and compassionate, but also much more limited in my confidence that I know that much about the world. Um, there always seems to be so much more. Um, and in fact, just to add to the case example and your uh, brilliant summary, I have to say the other piece in all of this is that never-ending imposter syndrome uh, that goes along with doing the work is how do we then become, how do we stand up to our own uh, anxiety or uh, that some of us feel? And in the moment when I was interviewing that guy, important to say is I was doing this in front of my own supervisee, um, who knew I'm a member of the motivational interviewing network of trainers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a part of me that's saying, boy, you'd better be getting this right. Um, and I just want to, you know, put words to that because I'm not sure that some of that ever entirely goes away. Um, just the same, if if I might offer one little sort of summation of everything that I've read and all of the research, it's that decades of re scientific research have shown us that punishing people doesn't get them to change and that treatment can get them to change. And with people in criminal justice, very often it combined good treatment with good supervision, then that has an additive effect. It helps just a little bit more. But that it, at the end of the day, with even the most violent people, the safest person who has abused others is stable with their behavior. They're occupied with a job or education. They have supportive people to whom they're accountable, and they have plans for the future 
and therefore everything to lose by doing it again. And I sometimes think of that as the acronym SOAP, stable, occupied, accountable, and plan. Or as one person from Australia once said, how are you going to keep yourself clean? That's right, SOAP. I just sort of offer that up as it's one more anchor point or set of anchor points as we go in and we have these difficult conversations with difficult clients. And it, my final response to what you just said, Glenn, is it never ceases to amaze me how difficult the work is that many people using MI actually do. And there's a fellow in the Pacific Northwest named Ken, um, who I remember meeting and I told him what I did for a living. And he then said that he was involved with homeless adolescents trying to get them engaged in safe sex practices. And I thought after that, that, I will never have much pride about my work again, because there's a guy doing some difficult work. Same thing like with um, HIV infected individuals, as we talked about before, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Well, I, <clears throat> I feel like we're, we're approaching the uh, need to transition to to the end of our talk today. I, I, I do f also feel the need, though, to to go back to this collusion uh, mm. topic that I, I want to make sure that everyone understands that and that maybe the word collusion maybe for someone who with for whom english is a second language or, or or not their primary language that might they might not get that or understand what we're getting at here and, and but i also feel like it's one of those concerns that that cut across all kinds of clinical populations right so um perhaps just just highlight again what you were talking there about collusion and maybe using some other phrases Sure. Um, when I think of collusion, it's a word that's been in the news in the United States a lot. Um, it has uh, different, uh, different kinds of meanings. I'm using it in the sense of, am I ending up endorsing views that lead to illegal or harmful behavior? Am I somehow um, giving permission to uh, believe that abuse is acceptable under some circumstances. And some extreme versions of that might come from, well, I've heard it said in group therapy, for example, oh no, I understand exactly what you mean. I've, um, I've drunk the equivalent of the Atlantic Ocean. And let me tell you, having sex during an alcoholic blackout is a very real thing. Or as a matter of fact, I've also met uh, children who can consent to sex or what have you. Obviously, that's an extreme form of collusion, but it could look like, oh, sure, I know exactly what college life can be all about. Um, if I'm indicating to this person that there's something about abuse that is acceptable, uh, that could be viewed as um, as uh, endorsing them. Or uh, American slang word is to co-sign, as if I was co-signing alone um, with them. And of course, the um, the word that I've always heard clinically is to collude, or its noun form is is collusion. That's probably the best that I can do is, am I somehow endorsing or siding with them in a way that's losing uh, losing uh, uh, sight of the fact that abuse is abuse? Right. And, and so rather than, um, I guess, ignore parts of somebody's story that, that seem to indicate some rationale for their behavior, you you use double-sided reflections a great deal and and as you as you describe it kind of dancing with those statements 
not to ignore them, but to acknowledge that that's part of what this person's thinking is about, or that's part of how they're trying to make sense of the world. And you're also reflecting back some of the, the, the parts of them, either emotionally, non-verbally, or, or, or parts of their, their verbal story that are at odds, perhaps, with, with some of their behavioral choices. Yes. Really, thank you. Uh, so, um, Glenn, should we start uh, transitioning to the end here? I, sure. As always, we could go on and on and yeah, on. This absolutely. is so, fantastic. so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And what we normally do, David, is offer our guests an opportunity just to take a moment before we finish, just to reflect on anything that is of particular interest to them, at the, their curiosity in the world. It doesn't necessarily have to be motivational interviewing orientated, but something that you're pondering, something that you're interested in, something you're exploring at the minute that, you, that you'd be happy to share with us and we could spend a few minutes talking to you with. Sure. I guess it never ceases to amaze me how compassion seems to be in short supply. Perhaps this is a, a, a byproduct of um, reading headlines. Um, I know that the world is filled with wonderful and, and compassionate people, but I constantly look for more evidence of, uh, of compassion within uh, uh, the actions of our various governments. Uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that goes without saying, but sometimes I think we should still say it nonetheless. And and within that, then within the context of that, I guess the, the point that I didn't get to make earlier is how often people who have been criminally justice involved or, or who have um, struggled terribly with substance use disorders or, or what have you, my MI practice has been limited in some ways in that I wind up having to be very careful with affirmations. How I affirm people, I tend to work it in almost on the sly or in a, a semi-sneaky fashion into my reflective statements and my summaries. I don't get to provide affirmations as much because when I use affirmations in the way that some people do, I might actually go too far with some of my clients for whom a world-class affirmation, as you would see in an MI video, would end up coming off as too much or an overdose of affirmation to people who've been taught and who have uh, come to hate their lives and hate their futures and hate themselves in, in many respects. Uh, all too often, my clients have been taught to hate themselves because of the behaviors that they've engaged in. And as a result, if somebody were to come and score me or to observe my MI practice at work, they might say, David, why didn't you use more affirmations? And I would have to say, well, I used affirmations as far as I could, but I have to use them in very, very, very low doses because very often my clients will simply object or disagree with me. So I have to work them in very slowly. So you're very sensitive to the needs of the people you're working with. And it sounds like that you've, you strive hard to do MI in those situations, but MI in those situations sounds very different from MI in other situations because of the needs of the people you're talking to. And that's what's most important to you, being helpful. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you. And I will get the affirmations in and I will say, but timing, I think, is everything that despite everything else, despite the, the response that you've gotten from the entire world, you're still willing to talk with me today about about having sex with children. Mm. That takes 
lot of courage, a lot of strength, and really speaks to your commitment to be able to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So this is something in MI practice that I've uh, I've thought about a great deal over the years is, mm-hmm. why don't I get to use affirmations like that other person? Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem uh, fair. Who I Right, right, exactly. I imagine it's one of the things you're most careful about is there's, and and just in hearing the affirmation that you just offered, that the affirmation highlights the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the pro-social behavior or the the non-harming behavior, making sure that that affirmation links with that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, certainly, uh, an affirmation for um, um, a, a criminal diversity, for example, <laughs> right. uh, would, yeah, would sure. speak for itself. So. Sure. Okay. So you were you were talking about thinking in more maybe geopolitical terms uh, as where your your thinking is going at this point. Well, it's just something that I notice mm-hmm. um, that uh, that that human beings can be such. Uh, uh, wonderful and helpful creatures. Um, and we can come to one another's assistance in the most wonderful, amazing ways uh, on one hand. And on the other hand, um, when I read the headlines, perhaps it's that compassion doesn't sell. Um, I don't know. But uh, I often think to myself, uh, our world leaders don't always use their conversational skills to the best of their abilities. Mm. Uh, perhaps they do behind the scenes, um, and I'm not aware of it. But I would love to see uh, a great deal more of MI skills in world discussion. Mm. Um, I realize I'm, I'm a, on a touchy subject because um, there's a real reaction to uh, how do we use uh, MI um, in, on the world stage. And whether you know the ethics of MI and everything else that others will speak to more more articulately than I can, but um, I guess you know 35 years of professional practice, uh, thir- 13 years of being a minty has influenced me in the direction of I want to see more compassion in the world around me, and hopefully, and as I approach the end stages of my career, I can be helpful in that regard. Uh, but I don't know what it looks like yet. Mm. And, and and what struck me is I was just curious. I wonder what the upstream understanding would show us if we were to listen to world leaders and try and hear hear what they're really asking for. If if yes, if, if they are who we think they are. Yes, behind, exactly. Behind, How- behind the public presentation. Mm. There you go. Mm. Balancing competence and connection mm. and autonomy. Yeah. 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 Def- definitely a conversation for another podcast perhaps not necessarily yeah. focused oh. on motivation interviewing uh, but yeah. uh, certainly yeah. one I would imagine a lot of people would be interested to be part of uh, and to have an opinion on but as Seb was saying uh, we, we do need to close so Seb you just want to remind people how they can contact us before we finish uh, I will but actually before that um, David we, we uh, always ask our guests if the audience is uh, if, if this stirs up some questions or some ideas that audience uh, that audience members would like to contact our guests directly uh, for, uh, would you be open to that? And if so, how do people contact you? Please do. Um, uh, my current email address, although I've had it since the mid 1990s, is vt as in Vermont Prescott at Earthlink.net. And then, if you don't mind a little bit of very very inappropriate humor. 
Um, if you simply Google search my name, David Prescott, plus the term sex offender, I will probably be your first 100 hits. Um, I, I also have a website, which is uh, www.davidprescott.net. I would never um, name a website after myself, but I'm married to the web designer, and she thought it was a thing to do. So, Good choice. Good choice, David. Yeah. And, and, so, and it's, it's important to say that the Prescott has two T's. Uh, Prescott has two T's at the end. Yes. Good. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Uh, well, right. So, again, reminders about ways to contact us. And again, we welcome reviews, ratings, questions, comments. Uh, Talking to Change is the Facebook page. At Change Talking is the Twitter handle. And uh, you can contact us directly via uh, email at uh, with podcast at glenhines. Dot com. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for this really, really interesting conversation, um, and uh, we really enjoy it, and we hope our listeners do as well. So, so thank you so much. Thank you very much, and keep up the great work with an excellent podcast. It was great to to listen to it. Thanks, David. Okay. All right. Take care, Seb. Okay, Glenn. Until next time. Cheers, man. Bye, everybody. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.